Amen. Well, Jamie and I uh, celebrated our fifth anniversary on Friday. We spent the night in Columbus. It was our first time spending the night away from our kiddos when it was just the two of us uh, ever since Ezra's been born, which has been nearly four years now. Uh, we went to the young adult getaway earlier this year without our kiddos, but we were with a lot of other people. And so we thoroughly enjoyed our time together. I remember uh, before we were married, and you hear these stories of these couples who only go on date nights like a few times a year. And I'm thinking like, oh, that'll never be us. Trust me, never be us. <laughs> well, five years into our marriage did take five years. Uh, that's us, and I'm ashamed of that. Uh, but we enjoyed our time together. It's important to spend time with those that are dear to you. And so for our fifth anniversary, we went out to Columbus, enjoyed our time out there uh, without Ezra and Ayla. We love them dearly, but it was nice to get away, just the two of us. Um, got her a new ring. Uh, and so it, it, it was really just, just a very good time that the two of us share together. But this time away that we had together and this ring that I got for Jamie to help celebrate our fifth anniversary, neither of these were the best gifts that I gave to Jamie. The gift I give to Jamie, uh, which is the greatest gift uh, that, that I give to Jamie, uh, is the same greatest gift that you can give to your spouse, the same greatest gift that you can give to your kids, to your parents. And so men, listen up out there, men, this is the greatest gift that you can give to your wives. Ladies, listen up, this is the greatest gift you can give to your husbands. Parents, listen up, this is the greatest gift you can give to your kids. And kids, listen up, this is the greatest gift you can give to your parents. And that should pretty much uh, include just about all of us there. And so listen up here. The greatest gift that I give to Jamie is loving God more than her. That is the greatest thing that I can do for Jamie is to love God more than I love Jamie. I shared this poem a few years ago, but I'm going to share it again uh, for starters because probably none of you guys even remember this uh, from a few years ago. Uh, and two, I think it is a great poem. Uh, and at the end of it, if you remember it, call, call me out on it. I would love to hear that. Uh, but I love this poem because it is simple and yet profound at the same time. And, and I love simple and yet profound truths. When I think of simple yet profound truths, I think uh, of the truth in the kingdom where when Jesus comes back to earth. He's going to make uh, everything right. Everything wrong with this world is going to be made right. It's a very simple truth, but yet so profound. I think of the one God that we serve, the one God, the creator of the heavens and the earth we serve and we worship him. That truth is so simple, yet it is so profound. And uh, John Piper, uh, a well-known preacher, wrote this poem to his son who was about to get married. It's a very simple poem Yet very profound as well. And he wrote to his son, Yes, love her. Love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. Beyond this venture not. But lest your love become a fool's facade, be sure to love her less than God. It is not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall as in humility before a likeness of your God. Adore above your best beloved on earth 
the God alone who gives her worth. And she will know in second place that your great love is also grace and that your high affections now are flowing freely from a vow beneath these promises first made to you by God, nor will they fade for being rooted by the stream of heaven's joy, which you esteem and cherish more than the breath and life that you may give it to your wife. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless, go love her more by loving less. Now, I'll be the first person to admit that I don't really like poetry uh, that much. I never read poetry just for fun, but I do sincerely enjoy this poem here that, that John Piper wrote to his son. You, you can just imagine the emotions going through John Piper's mind as, as he is putting pen to paper, writing this poem out for his son who is about to marry the love of his life. And the message for, to his son is simple. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. The best thing that you can do for your family, whether that be your wife, your husband, your kids, your parents, your siblings, cousins, you name it. The best thing, the best gift that you can give them is to love God more than them. To help drive home this point this morning, we're going to contrast two separate families in the scriptures. These are families that existed at the same time in the same place. Both of these families are found in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of 1 Samuel, right before 2 Samuel. Eh, a little bit there. There we go. Uh, ne never gets old. Never gets old. <laughs> Uh, first, Samuel, we're going to be reading. Uh, we're going to be reading a pretty lengthy chunk of scripture this morning. We're going to be reading the majority of chapters one and two this morning as we contrast two separate families that lived at the same time, the same place, and, and these families actually interacted with one another. And uh, my hope is that after we take a look at these two families, we can all understand this truth that the best gift you can give to your family is to love God more than them. And so 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, this is, takes place after the events of Moses leading the Israelites out of the nation of Egypt. And then Joshua took the reins from Moses and Joshua led the Israelites into the conquest of Canaan, the conquest of the promised land, this land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so Joshua and the Israelites, they, they go and conquer a good uh, chunk of the land. They never unfortunately conquered the entire land that, that was a portion to them, and this led to uh, their eventual downfall. But after Joshua led the conquest of Canaan, there were many judges who ruled the nation of Israel. The, the judge, when we read through the book of Judges, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel, a judge is a little different than what we view in our idea of a judge today. A, a judge was more of like a local military leader. It, it, it was really the, the whole shebang right there, the judge, whereas we have these three separate branches. The, the judge, during the time of Israel, they had a lot more authority, authority, jurisdiction than like a judge would in our society today. And so there were many judges who, who led the nation of Israel, some better than, than others, and the 
for the majority of them, they led the nation of Israel to God. Then a judge would die. The, the Israelites would fall away from God. And then a new judge would come and they would uh, follow after God again. But we're looking at two of the last leaders this morning before Israel had kings. First and second Samuel, a lot of it is about Saul and David, who were the first two kings of Israel. Because this nation of Israel, they were looking at all of these other nations that surrounded them. And all these other nations, they had kings. They had a king who sat on a throne and ruled his people. And that looked really cool to the Israelites. And so the, the Israelites, they wanted a king. They failed to recognize that God was their king. But before uh, the, the Israel had these two uh, united uh, kings, uh, the, these two kings of the United Nation of Israel, we read from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, and it reads, There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Uh, lots of names there. Uh, but, but essentially what we see here is this, there is this man named Elkanah and he has two wives here. One wife is Hannah. Hannah doesn't have any children and his other wife Penina and, and she has children. And so we see in verse 3, now this man, that, that's Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And so here we, we introduce uh, three new characters here. So first we have Elkanah, who's married to Hannah and Penina, and uh, Hannah doesn't have any children. And then Elkanah, this man, is going to uh, the place of worship where the priests were. And here we have Eli, who was a priest. And Eli, he had two sons who also served in the priesthood. Those two sons were Hophni and Phinehas. That's one family that, that we're going to take a look at here in a minute is Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Verse four, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So, when, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And so here, as Elkanah and his family, that would be Penina and her kids, and then Hannah, they're going to this offering, and they, uh, Elkanah is providing the, these different portions to his family members. And he gives a double portion to his wife, Hannah, uh, probably out of sympathy, empathy for Hannah, as Hannah is not able to uh, bear Elkanah any children. And, and this grieved Hannah to her heart. And obviously it seems like Hannah and Penina, they, they didn't have the best relationship with one another. As I would uh, imagine a lot of family situations like this where man has multiple wives. I do not think that that was part of God's ideal plan uh, for mankind, for a man to have multiple wives. But we see it take place on a number of different occasions throughout the Old Testament. But oftentimes we see a number of issues that bring forth from a man having multiple wives. And, and here we see this issue of these wives not necessarily getting along with one another. One is essentially bullying the other, making fun of the fact that Hannah is barren and Hannah had no children. 
That, that was really an integral role uh, for, for a, a wife and, and their society was to be the mother uh, of the children. That, that was a very key role in her life, in their society. And so if she would bear it, that would be a big burden on Hannah. And, and it wore down on her. And Hannah would weep year after year. And, and Penina was ruthless in, in these torments that, that she would uh, bring forth to Hannah. And so verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then... I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And so here is Hannah and Hannah is going to the temple to pray to her heavenly father, the tabernacle. And as she is praying to God, she makes a vow with God. And she says, God, if you give me a son, then I will dedicate him to you. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. As Hannah so desperately wanted a son and she viewed if God would grant her a son, then she would give him to the Lord to serve the Lord all the days of his life. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Uh, after all uh, of these festivities, uh, Eli sees Hannah sitting there praying. She's, but, but nothing is coming out of her mouth. Many of you guys probably maybe have similar stances when you're praying to God earnestly. Your mouth is moving, but, but maybe no words are coming out. Your voice isn't coming out of it. It's all in your heart. And here Eli saw this. And after uh, they, they had this party, he's thinking, man, this lady is drunk. What, what in the world is she doing? But, but she, uh, we, we, we see Hannah answered in verse 15. No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And so after Eli questions Hannah, uh, you know, are, are you drunk, Hannah? What, what, what is going on? She says, no, I'm fervently praying to the Lord. And, and I guess they, they have uh, this conversation. And Eli, the priest, says that your request will, will be granted to you. Your, your, your petition that you have made to him will, will come to fruition. And she, she goes away uh, encouraged by this. And then verse 19 they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. Uh, knew, that's the code word for married couples there. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. For Samuel sounds like the Hebrew uh, word heard of God. And so here, Hannah praying to God, God, if you grant me a child, 
then I will give him to you to serve you all the days of his life. And lo and behold, God takes Hannah up on this vow and God grants Hannah a son. After years of being barren, after years of not having any children, Hannah finally, this this sincere desire that she had, God granted to her. And so we see in verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up for, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait only until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, uh, Lord, there uh, a, a title of authority. And so she's talking to Eli, the, this man who has authority. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed. How cool is that? And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. And so year by year, Elkanah and his family, they, they go and, and provide the, these offerings, the, this festival uh, at the tabernacle, the place of worship there. Hannah wanted to stay back for a bit to, to uh, nurse her baby boy, Samuel. And then eventually Samuel uh, got to the point where he was weaned from his mother. And so Hannah goes to the temple and she approaches Eli, the priest there. And she, uh, I'm not sure, maybe Eli didn't recognize her at first, uh, but she tells Eli that I, I'm the woman who, who was here a while ago praying. And I was praying for a child. I was praying for this child. I was praying for this boy. And God answered my prayer. And now my baby boy, Samuel, God delivered on his word, And Hannah here is delivering on her word. For she told God that if you grant me a child, then I will lend him to you all the days of his life for your service. And so in chapter two, the the first uh, 10 verses there, we we see a prayer of Hannah as she is giving praise and thanksgiving to God. Uh, We're going to gloss over this prayer of Hannah as she is praising God as we continue here in verse 12, we see, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And so again, remind ourselves, we're talking about two separate families here. First family is Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The second family is Hannah and her son Samuel and Hannah's husband Elkanah as well. But Elkanah doesn't play a huge role here on out. So we're contrasting Hannah and Samuel and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And so verse 12, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. 
Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men, that's uh, Hophni and Phinehas, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And so here we, we see here in verses 12 through 17, uh, we're, we're putting the spotlight on Eli and his sons here for a minute here. And Eli serving in the priesthood and his two sons serving in the priesthood as well. That was very customary for a priest during the law of Moses. If a father were to serve into the priesthood, his sons would, would uh, typically follow suit as well. And so his two sons serving as a priest to the people, and when the, the Israelites would bring an offering, they, they would bring their offering to the priest and the priest would help them administer this offering to the Lord. It was typical, it was common, it, it, it was the law. Uh, we, you can read more about this in Leviticus uh, chapter 7 and chapter 10, talk about some of the rules of the offerings and what the priests were able to eat or not. But essentially, through these different offerings that the Israelites would provide, that is how the priests would eat. And for for the, the priests, they didn't have a job other than uh, providing for the temple, providing uh, for, for the people, the Israelites. And, and so they would eat these different offerings that these different Israelites would bring in. And there were certain uh, portions of these offerings that the priests were able to eat. Long story short, uh, if you don't uh, go, go back in chapter 7 and 10, you see that Hophni and Phinehas, they were eating more than their fair share. They're, they're taking this three-pronged fork, and they were taking whatever would come up with, with this fork, when, when really there, there were certain uh, chunks of this meat that, that were ascribed for the priests. And so here they're, they're taking more meat than, than was ascribed to them. And not only that, but they are taking this meat before it was offered to the Lord. Verse 16 said, if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, the, the burning this fat to the Lord, serving as an offering, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, or these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would say, no, you must give it to me now. And if not, I'm going to take it by force. If not, I'm going to be violent with you to get this food that I want. I get my portion before you offer this to the Lord. And so it was a very gross thing that these two sons were taking part in. They were taking this offering that was to be presented to God uh, to, to, to help uh, settle their relationship be between God and mankind. And they're taking these offerings and they were using it to sin against God. These priests were profaning these offerings that the Israelites were bringing before God. And if the Israelites would not cooperate... These two, these two sons threatened to be violent with them. And so, so very, very evil priests here that uh, the, the Israelites are dealing with. Hophni and Phinehas, they have fallen far from their rightful duty as a priest of God. And so here we see switching gears here in verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. 
A boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman. For the petition she asked of the Lord, so then they would return to their home. We're going to see this a, a few times here, talking about Eli's two sons, and without skipping a beat, uh, putting the spotlight on Samuel. And so here the writer Samuel is kind of uh, dishing out on Hophni and Phinehas for, for this, uh, e these evil offerings that they were taking part of. Without skipping a beat, we see, well, Samuel, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. No further details needed. Samuel was serving his heavenly father. Samuel was serving God. Verse 22, without skipping a beat. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So what we see here is not only are Hophni and Phinehas taking part in these unlawful offerings and taking the meat before it's offered to God, taking more than what's apportioned to them, now we find out they're sleeping with the woman at the entrance of the tent of meeting, this place where they would offer these offerings and where they would come to worship God. And so Eli, he hears of this. He hears of his sons misbehaving on a grave degree there. Verse 23, and he said to them, he said to his two boys, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear uh, the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And so Eli here, he, he approaches his two boys and, and he's asking, what, what in the world is going on, guys? What, what is taking place? And so here we see Eli, he does confront his two sons here. Uh, and a detail that we'll see here in a bit, uh, maybe Eli's heart wasn't totally in this. Maybe he was a bit apathetic. Uh, but nevertheless, we see that Eli, yes, he, he does approach his two sons who are doing these uh, awful things and they, they don't care. They, they didn't listen uh, to the voice of their father as uh, children may often do. They don't listen uh, to the voice of their father. They go Go on uh, acting a fool, and, and that's what his uh, two boys did. And it was a will of the Lord to put them to death. For, for God is a God of justice. And here, these two guys, Hophni and Phinehas, they are taking the offering of the Lord, and they are ridiculing, the Israelites are ridiculing the Lord by taking more than, than what's apportioned to them and by taking the offering before it's offered to God as well. Verse 26, I'll skip a beat. Now the boy Samuel, Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. That uh, description reminds me of in Luke 2.52, uh, talking about Jesus and how Jesus grew in wisdom. Jesus grew in, in his relationship. But, but here we see Samuel, not much detail, but we see that Samuel, continu Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So Eli and his sons, bad. Samuel, serving the Lord. Eli and his son, or Eli's sons, uh, sleeping with a woman, bad. Samuel, He's growing ever closer to God. Verse 27 here. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, 
So, so this is an un, unnamed uh, man. This is a man of God, someone, someone who is speaking on behalf uh, uh, of God. He says, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? This man of God is talking about Eli's a father. He's talking about his lineage. That's the Levites. God chose Levi, the tribe of Levi, to, to be his priest. And so he's saying, he's telling Eli, God chose you out of all the families. He chose your family to serve him. Verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. So that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And so here that this man of God approaches Eli and he's telling Eli, of all the families, of all the tribes, he chose your family to serve him. And at the same time, you and your sons are disgraced to the service of the Lord. Verse 29, I, I want to read that, that again. Uh, this man of God says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? I think that is the issue that Eli was facing. He was honoring his sons above the Lord. Here, this man of God seems to indicate that, that not only were, were Eli's sons taking part in eating the, the more of the offering than what was apportioned for them and taking uh, the first fruits there, but this man of God seems to indicate that Eli is taking part in this as well. And he says, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel. So here we see uh, Eli, you know, kind of rebuking his sons for, for some of the things that they were doing. But yet we see that Eli apparently partaking in some of these exact things. He, he, was, uh, he was profaning the offering of God. And because Eli honored his sons above God. Eli cared more about his sons than God, and that led to the doom and gloom of his family. Because of this shortcoming of Eli and his sons, this man of God uh, told Eli uh, that, that, that God was going to destroy their family, that no longer were they going to be in the service of the priests. But instead, this is going to be the sign to you, Eli, that one day, both of your sons are going to die. 
They're going to die on the same day. And when that happens, you're going to know that I mean what I say. When you and your family have no part in the service anymore. And then verse 35, after just ripping into Eli and his sons, this man of God says, and I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. There's some speculation about uh, who this uh, might be, who uh, this man of God is referring to. Some believe it's referring to Samuel, uh, talking about this faithful priest who will uh, go and before God's anointed, before his kings that he has chosen. And so here we, we, we see a positive light shed uh, possibly on Samuel as well, something uh, Zadok, uh, a later priest down the line. Uh, but regardless, we see this contrast between Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel, three people born and, and raised in the service of the Lord. And yet we see two totally different results. We're going to stop the story here uh, for this morning. But if you were to continue along this story with these families, I encourage you to do so, uh, um, to, to continue to read along this account in 1 Samuel. If you, if you continue to read along, you will see that the priestly line does indeed fall away from Eli's family. Uh, and, and you would see in, in chapter four that the Philistines, they go to war against the Israelites and Hophni and Phinehas are there. And Hophni and Phinehas... Lo and behold, they die on the same day, just like the man of God told Eli. Uh, some reporter uh, came, uh, a messenger came and reported this to Eli. He said, Eli, I got bad news. Both Hophni and Phinehas died in battle. You know what Eli did when he heard this bad news? He fell back, he broke his neck, and he died on the spot. He, he, he was signing, essentially, Eli was signing their death certificates by honoring his sons above God. That led to the unglorious, the, the unfaithful, the unrepentant death of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. It was a gloomy, gloomy end to Eli's family. And what about Samuel? What happened to Samuel if you were to continue along in this narrative? We see that Samuel will continue in his service to God. Samuel would have two books of the Bible named after him, 1st and 2nd Samuel. God used Samuel to pick the first two kings of Israel, and he was integral in the life of both of these kings. And overall, Samuel had a great life and ministry to the Lord. And so here we have two families a lot of similarities between these two families at first. But before long, their paths greatly diverge from one another. And why is that? Well, it appears that Elkanah and Hannah gave their son Samuel the best gift possible. They loved God above their own son. For Hannah so desperately wanted a child praying to the Lord, God, please, please grant me a son. And God, if you do that, then I will give him to you the rest of the days of his life. And so we, we see God delivers on that word there. God delivers a son to Hannah. 
And Hannah follows suit. She sends them off to the temple, sends them off to the tabernacle to go and serve the Lord all the days of his life. And we see that, that eventually God blessed uh, Hannah and Elkanah uh, with more children as well. But we see that nothing got in the way with this vow, this word that Hannah established with God. She did not let the adoration of her baby boy get in the way of what she promised to the Lord. Because I'm sure Hannah would have loved to spend more time with her boy Samuel. I'm sure she would have loved to have him in the house and eat together, dine together, fellowship together, play together, hang out, and just watch her baby boy grow up. But she didn't let the adoration get in the way of her love for God. We don't have a ton of details about what it looked like, but according to 2 Samuel, uh, or 1 Samuel 2.29, Eli honored his sons above God. And that led to the permanent downfall of that family. When Eli loved his sons more than God, he was signing his son's death certificate. And so what does that mean for us? What can we learn from these two families and how their paths started uh, pretty similar at first, but then greatly diverged down the line? Well, I think we can learn the lesson that the greatest gift we can give to our family is to love God above our family. That was the best thing possible for Samuel. And the lack of this, the lack of this love uh, 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 for, for God uh, above his family and Eli's situation was the doom and gloom of both Eli and his two boys. From what I've observed over 26 years, this is one of the greatest shortcomings in the church in America. We live in a society that values family. I think, I think we're, we're starting to grow away from that. And I am so glad that we do. Because family is such a huge blessing from God. To have a community of people that's connected through blood and marriage is powerful. And you cannot replace that. And it grieves me to see people who don't get to share in that blessing because they've been separated from their family or for whatever other reason. And so family is such a big blessing. And I think our society recognizes that. Our society values the role of a family, but we have to stay away from the temptation to value our families above God. When we value our family above God, we are making an idol out of our family. We put so much pressure on our family when we do this, and they simply cannot handle that pressure. You will be disappointed in the end when you value your family above God. You're only hurting your family. I don't think hardly any Christians uh, would say that they value their families over God. And that's great. However, we can't just talk the talk. We must also walk the walk. And that's where I think many people get themselves in trouble. It's easy to, it's easy to say you love God more than your family, but at times it can be difficult to put that into practice. If someone were to observe your life, what would be their conclusion? Would they determine that you love God above your family? 
where they determine that you love your family above God? What does your schedule look like? What do your actions look like? What are your thoughts composed of? What do your feelings look like? Do these all support the notion that you love God above your family? And I encourage you guys today and the rest of this week to honestly evaluate yourselves and honestly evaluate how you love God and your love for your family as well. Does your family come before God? If so, something needs to change. Something needs to change. You're only putting pressure on them that nobody, nobody can sustain. And so we must first love God. And through our love for God, we then provide a greater love than we could ever offer to our wives, to our husbands, to our children, to our parents. You know, Hannah and Eli, they both loved their children very dearly. But Hannah didn't let her son Samuel get in between her relationship with God. And it was to Samuel's benefit. Eli let his sons get in between his relationship with God, and it was to Hophni and Phinehas' great downfall. And so I realize now after five years of marriage and nearly four years of having kids, I have all the answers. I'm kidding. I, I don't. I, I am far from it. Great, you guys are listening. Uh, however, I do realize that the best thing that I can do for my family is prioritize God above them. It's to love God above my family. And when I love God above all else, it's through that love that I can love my family just as Christ loved the church. There is no greater love than that. And so that is the greatest gift you can give to your family is to love God above your family. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the blessing of family, the blessing it is to be a child, a parent, a sibling, a cousin, aunt, uncle, father, you name it, grandparent, grandchild, father, we just thank you for the great blessing of family. Father, I just pray that we do not let anything get in the way of our relationship with you first and foremost, including our family. And Father, it's my hope and it's my prayer that here at North Hills, through our love for you, we can provide a love for our family that is better than any other type of love. So God, we thank you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.